Well, good evening, good evening, everyone. Um, my welcome to you all who uh, watch this on YouTube. My welcome also to everyone in the podcast as we uh, as we delve into the 17th century, or as uh, is commonly known, the 1600s uh, here this evening. It is no small thing that uh, we we aim to work through an entire uh, century here tonight. Um, it's not like it's going to be the easiest thing for us to do, but I will say it's going to be a really rewarding thing to make some connections that are usually not made in church history classes. So um, some of those aspects connecting uh, the close of the 1500s to then the opening of the 1700s, that 100-year span in the 1600s uh, really covers so many changes, uh, so many cultural changes, so many theological changes, uh, so many changes with regards to philosophy and thinking and art and architecture and uh, religion and thought and exploration and trade. And there's so many things that happen in the 1600s that it really does uh, necessitate its own sitting down and spending a night just talking about this century before we even start pulling apart bits of it. Um, as far as for church history, obviously the 1500s uh, are the most uh, significant from a Protestant perspective. Um, but from the, for the 1600s, I don't know that there is, uh, for Western civilization, a more significant shift um, in the way that uh, culture and thinking and, um, and trade and exploration and everything else works um, I don't think there's a more significant century uh, to deal with. And so as for, so most of this tonight is going to be history class, though we are going to spend some time uh, with theology and with certain aspects of how history and church history are going to intertwine in this culture or in this century. Um, but since the 1600s is so important for history, it really doesn't make any sense to ignore that. Um, and so we are going to pay attention to that and we are going to uh, work with that and um, and address that as directly as we can. Um, so with that, I wanted to kind of give a bit of an overview and then we're going to dive right in and we're going to cover, goodness, we're going to cover all sorts of different aspects, um, the scientific revolution, the beginnings of that and the rumblings of that, the confessional age of Protestantism. And again, for most of this stuff, we're going to be looking at it from like 50,000 feet up. So it's going to be a, a pretty significant overview. Um, things like philosophy, um, which we'll get into much more when we get into the later stages of the Enlightenment. But the beginning rumblings of that are here. Um, and then also parts of art and architecture and some of the changes that happen with that. A lot of the kingdoms, the political forces that work here, the wars that take place, the English Civil War, we're not going to delve much into, but just mentioned as a byword here, the 30 years war, we'll cover a little bit more of that one. Um, and then uh, the effects that all of this have as the new world uh, is beginning to be colonized and settled. Um, it's going to be quite a trip. So buckle up. If you're interested in history, if you're interested in theology, especially in Protestant theology, this is, this is a really interesting uh, place to go. So let's, let's get going with that. And that's the first thing we're going to cover is this is a really complicated century, right? The 1500s are complicated because, you know, you're dealing with 
um, you're dealing with the Protestant Reformation. And so there's a lot of thinking and thoughts that go back and forth, challenges as far as theology, as far as humanism, um, conciliarism, papal authority, uh, you know, all sorts of issues that come up that we've discussed at length. The 1600s really has much more to do um, with, with a shift culturally and the effects that these new ways of thinking have really played on uh, this culture. And so just to give you a, an idea for how broad of a change happens, I want to connect the beginning of that century with the close of it. Um, so at the beginning of the 1600s, you still have Elizabeth I as Queen of England, right? She's the last of the Tudor line. You had Henry VIII, then you had his son, Edward, and then you had his eldest daughter, Mary, and then you had his other daughter, Elizabeth. She is still Queen of England at the close of the 1500s. She dies in 1603. So at the beginning of the 1600s, Queen Elizabeth is still on the throne. At the close and by the end of the 1600s, see how many of these things that you have actually associated with this. The Salem witch trials in the young colony of Massachusetts have completed and are done. Isaac Newton had published much of his works in the areas of optics and gravitation by the close of the 1600s. By the close of the 1600s, John Locke, one of the most influential thinkers of the early Enlightenment, was nearing the end of his life. And Johann Sebastian Bach was a young man in Germany practicing the organ. And the, the onset of the Baroque period, the, the music, the arts, the architecture that comes out of all of this, that's the shift that takes place between these two eras, uh, between these two time zones of history. Uh, let me pause for just one second. And so as we address a lot of the issues that are going to go through this, it really helps, I think, to garner respect for how broad of a um, how broad of a shift has taken place to go from the Tudors all the way to, you know, we're dealing with Boston, we're dealing with New Amsterdam, we're dealing with, um, you know, the, the Dutch India trading companies, you're, you're dealing with. Um, so many different things. The Enlightenment is on its way. Uh, the scientific revolutions have taken place. Galileo, Kepler, all of these things are the 1600s. It's a pretty remarkable uh, amount of shifts that happen in this century. Uh, and so let's kind of let's kind of work through that uh, a little bit. And first of all, we just address the scientific side of things. So let me just mention that as a byway. We'll address that a little bit later on. But scientifically, people like I just mentioned, Kepler and Galileo. Uh, are challenging many of the historical understandings of the nature of the world, the universe, the solar system, that there is a solar system. I mean, you're, you're, you're looking through um, the design of things like optics and the refinement of glass to such a way that you can actually make uh, technological advancements and inventions like telescopes to where you can actually then aim it up to the sky and you can see that Venus is not just a point of light, but it goes through all its own phases, just like the moon does. You know, it has its its um, its first quarter and its waxing gibbous and its full, and then its waning gibbous and you know waning quarter and all that kind of stuff. It goes through all the phases, just like the moon does. Which means we're looking at a spherical Venus. Well, we're we've known forever we're looking at a spherical moon because of the way the sun's light sh uh, shines on that. But from this, we're able to actually address 
the realities of the way that the solar system itself runs and how it works. And uh, a lot of what had been taught throughout all of these years was that the Earth was at the center of all of these things. Well, mathematically, that started to be shown. And optically, it started to be shown that that just simply wasn't the case. Um, that caused a lot of theological concern, a lot of theological problems, uh, because there was misinterpretations of scripture that had led to conclusions that we didn't have any business making. Um, and so these types of things happen all the time. And so it really leads into uh, an early understanding of, you know, who gets to decide things like this? Where is that authority based? And that that original frustration with regards to authority structures, both from the Catholic Church and the Protestant challenges, uh, not only is it in conciliarism or in the in the papal office, but then the bigger question goes, what if they're both wrong? You know, what authority do we go to then, kings? What if they're wrong? And this kind of this kind of question of authority really becomes one of the defining points of European thinking. You know, if we have somebody who can prove to you mathematically what's going on with gravity, for instance, one of the things that Galileo did, for instance, was to to challenge this preconceived and held unanimous uh, consensus regarding a falling object that larger and heavier objects fall faster than smaller, lighter objects. When he goes to the Tower of Pisa, which is that leaning tower there, and he drops them off, and they hit the ground at the same time, well, what are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? You know, your eyes that see this thing happen, or someone else claiming these things uh, aren't the aren't the way of it. And so this starts this conversation of the nature of the relationship of science and theology. Uh, this is not the first time this happened. Obviously, that has been a subject for many, many centuries. But the the tenor of that discussion really gets moved forward significantly in the 1600s. Um, and that has a whole lot to do with once we're settling down, uh, how to address the nature of this world, how to address the nature of theology. Um, every single area gets challenged in one way or another. And um, I think there's a common misunderstanding regarding this earlier part of the scientific revolution that these scientists were out just, you know, high-handedly towards either the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church or anything like this. That's not how that was working. That doesn't really come until the radical enlightenment of the, you know, 1700s. The 1600s, these, these men are all seeing themselves as part of the church, uh, including people like, um, including people like Isaac Newton. Uh, Isaac Newton, actually, most people don't even realize, actually wrote more on theology than they did on science because they were seeing their pursuit of science as built out of their pursuit of uh, of God and the knowledge of God. And so when they would write on the scriptures, they would say, you know, this is a pursuit of special revelation. When they look and write about the natural world, they would say this is a pursuit of general revelation or or natural theology. Uh, how they, however they would call that. And they would say that in one, we are studying God as he specifically reveals himself in scripture. And then on the other side, we're studying God as he reveals himself in his creation. And so that was much more of the way of the 1600s than it, than it was, I think, than a lot of people think it was. So people like Sir Francis Bacon, for instance, 
Um, and we'll get into a lot of this because that that kind of stuff's really fascinating. I mean, most people, you know, their familiarity with Sir Francis Bacon, for instance, was, you know, that he was the um he was really big into um at least into developing the the precursors of what becomes the scientific method. Well, Sir Francis Bacon, you know, on his first edition of his book talking about a lot of these things, you know, is quoting Daniel chapter 12, you know, which which closes out the book of Daniel saying that you know, to, to Daniel, go your way. Uh, you know, you'll basically, you'll sleep with your fathers and all these things, you know, the time and the knowledge of this is not now men will go to and fro and knowledge will increase. And then the end comes. Right. And so this, this kind of idea that if we increase knowledge more and more, if we increase knowledge faster and broader, then we can actually hasten the coming of the Lord. And so you will see a lot of people interacting in the earliest parts of the scientific revolution on this more eschatological base. Like we can actually bring out the end of the world by increasing knowledge. Uh, really interesting stuff. We're going to get into a lot of that, not tonight, but we will get into that in the future as we as we kind of pull apart some of the parts of the scientific revolution and the um, and the early stages of the Enlightenment, because that really becomes important for us. Um, because that's really where we, that's really a lot of what we interact with going forward um, with regards to the modern world and modern thinking and uh, and the assumptions of the culture in which the church finds itself. Um, and so since I'm mentioning Enlightenment philosophy, I think it would be appropriate to bring up, this is also the, uh, the century where Rene Descartes and Cartesian philosophy comes from. Uh, most people who are not familiar with philosophy, um, I'm not going to, this is not a philosophy class, so I'm not going to delve into this, though if you are studying philosophy trust, you will be spending a lot of time with someone like Rene Descartes. Uh, as the father of early modern philosophy, most, most people are more uh, familiar with him uh, kind of, uh, I guess, by distance with his most common phrase, I think, therefore I am. Uh, th this this I idea of awareness uh, rationality, uh, determining a conclusion of existence. Uh, it's a really, it's really much more convoluted conversation than that. But for our intents tonight, uh, that would be sufficient. Um, this this kind of pursuit of rationalism, and uh, and if you can't see that a lot of this is really born out of this crisis of authority that's just been simmering underneath uh, the, the 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 underpinnings of Europe. Uh, I want you to see it and appreciate it just a little bit um, that reason can come before other authorities. The foundations of what becomes uh, individualism in the later enlightenments and uh, the the it, it is connected though very distantly so uh, to a natural descent from humanism. Uh, they kind of both have the same root. they don't they're not linear like that or in tandem. Um, but a lot of this is the um, a lot of this is the beginnings of enlightenment philosophy. Uh, and when I say enlightenment, I think a lot of Christians think like Voltaire and stuff like that. That's 1700s. 1600s, the enlightenment has no real beef with Christianity. Um, it's not until the radical enlightenment, uh, more the atheistic enlightenment, like three generations down the road that we get things like that. Can you ask a question? So there is a parallel between the attitude of the scientists now and Luther in the previous century. 
Oh, I'm going to ask you to clarify that question a little bit further because there are parallels, but I'm wondering what you're focusing on. So if you can clarify that question a little bit better, I would I would be in a way that uh, my brain can understand it. I would appreciate that more um, so that we can we can kind of work through that. I'll come back to that when you do. Um, I think I know what you're asking, but I want to make sure I answer the question properly. Um, throughout this entire century, we deal not only with issues of philosophy um, it, with regards to the culture, but really Protestantism grows up. In, in, in the 1500s, the, the Reformation and, and Protestant theology was really hemming and hawing back and forth, trying to figure out, we even saw this with, you know, um, in, in the Church of England with them trying to figure out things like, you know, the vestments controversy that never really gets settled all the way, or they're trying to figure out what way to translate the scriptures or the book of common prayer, or even in the more reformed circles, places like Geneva, how many different versions, how many different editions of, of Calvin's institutes of the Christian religion did we go through? You know, even with Luther, he, you know, by the time he, uh, by the time he comes to the end of his life, he looks back at what he's written. And he basically goes, you know, just ignore all of my earlier books because I was still, you know, basically a Catholic and and missing the whole point. Um, and so it's it's kind of interesting to watch because they got to see this transition over their lifetime. And as we look back at the 1500s, a lot of reform, uh, reformed theology is trying to find its footing. It's trying to understand the differences between Anabaptists and the radical reformers, the you know the 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 Zwickau prophets and the Mennonites, trying to figure out what exactly is going on throughout all of Europe, because it's not exactly a simple question to uh, to, to settle on, right? And so um, when we come to the 1600s, a lot of the stuff that was figured out earlier on really gets clarified and refined in the 1600s. There's definite divisions, there's definite disagreements, but um, some of the earliest statements of faith, some of the earliest confessions don't just live on unchanged uh, from the 1500s forward. They do get refined and specified. And as different reformations are going on in Europe, they will each do it in a little bit different of a way. Um, oh, let's see. Uh, so can you clarify the question? He says, not challenging, but wanting to correct uh, within the existing perspectives. We're all still Christians just fixing errors. Yeah, so that would be true. Um, with regards to, let's see, so your original question. So there's a parallel between the attitude of the scientists now and Luther in the previous century, uh, in that he's not challenging, but wanting to correct within. Oh, so you're saying that there's, uh, there's this parallel, oh, kind of like as a magisterial reformer looking to fix the church rather than to, you know, burn it all down. Yes, there would be parallels there. Um, trying to, trying to do that. So you're saying there's a parallel between his attitude in doing that and scientists now. I'm 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 thinking you're meaning scientists now in this conversation in the 1600s. Um, the answer would be yes. They're not trying to destroy the church. Galileo's not trying to come up with this high-handed, you know, put it to the church. He's just trying to say, look, I've seen something with my own eyes. You can't tell me I can't see that. Um, you know, it's it's plain as day. It's like a math test. When it's right, it's right. I don't know what to tell you. Um, oh yeah, yeah, you clarified. Yes, that's what you're talking about. Yes. So they're not looking to destroy anything that will come in the next century. Um, and the, the real, uh, you can, I mean, 
you can even see the difference in the terminology and the way we even write about this time period here. We see the beginnings of the Enlightenment. We see the beginnings of the scientific revolution. It's not until the next century that we call it the radical Enlightenment, you know, really similar to the radical reformations. And so, yeah, there would be a great parallel there. Good, good point. I like that. Um, and I'm glad I had you clarify because I thought you were asking something entirely different. So good. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So this confessional age of Protestantism, this is where Protestant theology kind of grows up and, and draws its borders, draws its lines out and kind of sets its flags down and says, okay, we've, we've kind of figured out where we stand. Um, that happens during the 1600s. And so you will see, so like I, for instance, I'm a Reformed Baptist. Uh, you will have, you know, if you ask me for a confession or a catechism that I can look back to and say, hey, you know, go read this. This is an accurate portrayal of what I believe. I would point you to the Second London Baptist Confession. And wouldn't you know, that's from 1689. That's from this time period. If you're Presbyterian, which I know there's Presbyterians in this audience, you're going to be looking back to the Westminster Confession. Um, and that is 1646, right? You know, if if you're Lutheran or something, you know, there's going to be you're you're going to be pushed back into the 1500s pretty significantly back to Luther's, um, you know, probably a smaller catechism or his larger catechism. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, you're going to you're going to see kind of the granddaddy uh, confessions from the 1500s, things like the Belgic Confession uh, or the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, some of these things will be taken significant contributions to things like the Westminster, the Second London Baptist Confession, or uh, or things like this. But a lot of clarity, a lot of expansion, some of the modern day issues, how we how we balance those things out. Um, a lot of the issues that came out of the Puritan uh, world and the challenges of late Geneva, um, even after Calvin's death and, um, and the guy who takes over after him, Beza, and some of the continuing work of that. Um, but it also comes in in the form of people challenging Reformed doctrines. And this is the first place where I'm going to dig in for uh, probably about 20 minutes here. And we're going to sit in one of the earlier parts of the 1600s and deal with uh, something that's called the Synod of Dort. Uh, the Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, of Dort. Uh, you can spell it any number of ways because it's not an English word, but I spell it D-O-R-D-T. The Synod of Dort. Uh, Dordrecht is a city in the Netherlands, and the Synod of Dort happens there to address some of the challenges that are being made towards the Reformed Church, especially the Dutch Reformed Church. And it becomes one of the most influential meetings as far as for kind of more robust uh, lines that are being drawn in the new Protestant world uh, between those that we will refer to as Arminians, not Armenians. That's a that's a country. Armenia is a country. Arminians are those who follow in the line of a man named Jacobus Arminius uh, in the late 1500s and um, kind of develop his theology past where he had it and bring that challenge, several points of which come and challenge against the prevailing reformed you know, Geneva narrative that's sitting out there. Um, all of that cloud uh, goes to the Synod of Dort and tries to hammer out some of the differences. Um, and if you want to read about this more, uh, the the um, the Arminian challenge uh, towards this are those called the Remonstrants. 
And uh, remonstrance is just R-E-M-O-N-S-T-R-A-N-T-S, remonstrance, uh, kind of exactly as it sounds. And those are those who are, are standing in kind of in protest. It's it's kind of like the, the strongest theology to come from uh, Europe during the Protestant Reformation would be Reformed theology. And that would be um, associated with the likes of John Calvin, who's uh, you know, several decades dead at this point, uh, Theodore Beza, um, Bullinger, uh, Busser, uh, and, and several more of these. Luther would be sort of lumped into some of these things, but this has grown past Lutheranism and, uh, and really the influence of Geneva and Swiss thinking, Dutch thinking, uh, and things like this really take over a lot of the Protestant move uh, in the next century. And so here at the, in the early parts of this, the Synod of Dort is held because there's those that are in the Protestant churches that are saying this has gone too far from, even from Catholicism, but maybe this has gone too far down the theoretical road. Uh, and so there's, there's a challenge made on several different points and those places have challenged generally are in five areas and the responses of the reformers uh, or of the reformed camp in the Synod of Dort begin to uh, are in five points. And if you've ever heard the five points of Calvinism, that didn't come from Calvin. That came from this century. That came from the Synod of Dort. Their responses to the Arminians uh, ended up spelling out uh, the flower tulip. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll address each of these one at a time because, and I want to talk about it in the right order because I really want to talk about it as far as for the Arminian challenge and then the answer of the Reformed camp uh, back and forth. And hopefully you can see um, these are disagreements that come down into the church even today. And this is one of those this is one of those things that I really like about church history is we can see you know how long is some of these conversations been going on, where do the camp set up, and what I what I say here is this is where this is not where everything is solved. This is a new way. This isn't calling together a church council and saying, hey, we're going to come together and we're going to write this one document and that's it. Everyone who doesn't agree with us is heretics. That's no longer how theology is being done. You're going to see a very different thing come out of this. Both sides are going to come together. They're going to draw their lines and define and challenge one another and define, and then they're going to split up. And there's not going to be an imposition of one side to the other. Now, are they both going to think each other are wrong? Yeah. But that's kind of how it goes. And this is a whole new way of doing theology. And if you recognize this, this is still how we do theology. Right? I have friends that are not Reformed Baptist like I am. I have friends that are Presbyterian. I have friends that are Lutheran. I have friends that, uh, I mean, I, goodness, I have friends that are Methodist even. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, I have friends uh, that are Catholics. I have friends all across the, uh, the different sides of Christianity in the West. Um, I'm not sitting here saying we need to come together, make a council, and impose whatever that council says, or whatever that synod says. Uh, on everyone else. I, I'm okay being wrong on something when it comes to stuff that's not the central tenets of the faith. And yeah, are these things important? Yeah. But are they central tenets of the faith? 
that's really up for discussion. I mean, this is not about the person of Christ. This is not about things like this. This is really about more of the, the application of the gospel. And you'll see what I mean by this, right? So let's take them one at a time. So there's five of them. That's why I said this is one of the few places where we're going to we're gonna really dive in this evening. Uh, we're, so we're going to pull out of the overview and we're going to pull down into the Synod of Dort. And we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more so. So let's, let's take these. There's five challenges that Arminian theology uh, came at the Reformed theologians uh, with. So the first one. <clears throat> the first one, we're going to do it in the order that they were answered in. So that just so that everyone can, just so things can be clearer. Um, there was a slightly different order in the challenges that they came, but it's not important. Um, so the first one will be over the concept of total depravity. Now, total depravity as a reform doctrine does not hold, uh, would put forth that, um, that all humans are completely incapable of coming to God for salvation, right? There's, there's, there's no ability to choose good over evil. We are actually depraved. That's our natural fallen state. Now, this is an interesting aspect to this, right? Because you will find a whole lot of people in, in Christian churches these days that will, that will deny that. I want to point out here, Arminian theology and Reformed theology both agreed on the nature of fallen man as totally depraved. Nobody other than the Pelagians and the semi-Pelagians would ever hold to man's not actually totally depraved. He can just choose between good and evil. Um, and so I know this is going to get a little bit more in the weeds, but this is for you theology nuts out there, okay? Um, and I, I'll say this to my Reformed brothers. We, we don't do a good thing when we misrepresent Arminian theology on this point. They're not semi-Pelagian, at least not in the early 1600s here. Um, they would hold to total depravity on this, this concept that, um, that without God's intervention, they would agree, mankind has just fallen with no hope. Okay? They agreed with total depravity on that point, but they described a grace of God that paved the, a road out of depravity which enabled everyone to respond to the offer of salvation. See what I mean by that? Uh, it, it, it is a type of grace called prevenient grace. Um, and that gives humanity as a whole the ability to choose between good and evil again. So there's no, there's no real effect of total depravity because it's preveniently set aside in Arminian theology. Um, and, and now humans have been gifted in God's prevenient grace, the ability to respond, uh, to God's offer of salvation. That would be the Arminian concept of this. And so really it's not, it's not really dividing between hairs here, but I think it's just fascinating how much closer to reform theology, Arminian theology is on this point than most people think. Uh, most people think that Arminian theology has gone full on Pelagius or semi-Pelagius. They actually denied that out of hand and by name, uh, you know, because people were accusing them of this. They said, look, we don't agree with Pelagius on this point. We don't think we have a natural ability of this. We think there's a prevenient grace that enables us uh, to respond to the offer of salvation. But if there wasn't prevenient grace, none of us would be able to, right? Pelagius, if you don't remember... 
back in the um, back in the four hundreds was was uh, or th- the the late three hundreds early four hundreds um, was uh, being argued with by Augustine with regards to um, man's free will and its limits, and Pelagius was saying uh, pretty much one for one if God commands something that necessitates that we have the ability to do it, um, which, you know, I, I mean, not only has every Protestant uh, worth his salt really d- disagreed with that, so did the Catholics. Everyone shoved that aside um, in a lot of different ways. But prevenient grace was a way kind of to work around that um, if from my perspective, but no matter. Um, that's just kind of where that says. So that was the first, that was the first challenge. They said the only reason that, uh, people aren't found in the state of total depravity is because God's preveniently graceful um, to humanity uh, and then extends out the offer of salvation to everyone. Right. So that's the first one. Um, that's total depravity. And um, and so then the second one will be over this issue of the doctrine of election. In the reform camp, the doctrine of election would be seen as an unconditional thing that God um that God elects those whom he will save and that and before the world was and, uh, and calls them effectually and saves them and glorifies, justifies, glorifies them. Right. Um, that election of those people in, in reformed theology is thoroughly in the mind of God for his purposes and pleasure. The Arminian challenge to that is that there is actually it's conditional election. Uh, a lot of people, this has kind of developed into this uh, this kind of idea that um, God foreknows those who will choose him, and so he elects those who he sees will one day choose him, uh, that like looking down the corridors of time somehow, and and electing those uh, on on the condition of who will believe. And so um, there's there's versions of this that were even held there. Um, uh, kind of the nameless, faceless crowd of the elect, um, so that God like elects all who will believe in Jesus, not by name. Uh, and so you can like join the elect, uh, go from unbeliever to believer. Um, and a lot of this will be focused. I think you can see kind of the rumblings of individualism working in here. Um, that you know, I can I can choose to go into that group, and and as we'll see in the later points, I can choose to leave that group. Um, and this isn't unique, even here, even in the radical reformations, you will have parts of this Anabaptist traditions. You'll have some of that. Um, and so that's the, that's the second point: this issue of what is the nature of the doctrine of election? You know, is it unconditional or is it conditional? Is it that God just chooses? who he will, or is it that there's conditions to that, that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you are elect. And um, so kind of like who's causing what. Um, the third point is is one that people uh, really get their emotions wrapped up into it. I'm going to try to talk about it without uh, many emotions wrapped into it, but it's the uh, concept. Now we move on to the issue of atonement. Um, there's two different sides to this. The reformer, uh, the reformed tradition would come in and they were saying that there was a limited atonement to this. They didn't all agree the same way, but generally speaking, there, um, like for instance, John Calvin never even wrote on this topic. Um, but as as the traditions continue to grow uh, and the outcroppings of these things continue to develop, kind of the ramifications for 
uh, things like, you know, unconditional election and stuff like that almost necessitated discussing the issue of atonement. And so that was one of the questions that came up uh, in reformed thinking. There is uh, generally an idea that the atonement of Jesus Christ, who he actually atoned for, is limited only to the elect. The Arminian challenge of that is that they would state that there is actually an unlimited atonement, that the atonement of Jesus's death was for all people without exception, whether they're believers or not. They, Christ atoned for the sins of every single person in the world. And they would quote scripture that talks to that end, that, that um, you know, uh, that Christ is the savior of the world, that he atoned not, you know, for our sins and not for, you know, not for us only, but also to the sins of the world, things like this. Um, and then the answer from the reform camp comes back and says, yes, that's not all without exception. That's all without distinction. Um, that it's all types of people, all kinds of people, all ethnicities of people. And because all doesn't actually mean all, no matter how many times people try to say it does, it really doesn't. Um, but that argument between how far the atonement of the, of the blood of Jesus covers, is it, is it effectual and only for the elect or is it for the believers and unbelievers also? And if so, what effect does that have on unbelievers? And so that kind of argument goes back and forth, and that still goes back and forth even today. Um, but to understand, so we've got the issue of total depravity. We've got the issue of uh, the nature of election, whether it's unconditional or conditional. The nature of the atonement, whether it's limited or unlimited. The reform side on these things is that there's unconditional election, that there's limited atonement. The fourth one is on the interaction of God's grace to a person that he's saving or trying to save. And I have to put it in those terminologies because they're both kind of different here. The nature of God's grace in the reform thinking had been that God's grace, when being given to someone who is elect of God in a salvific intention, is not resistible. It's irresistible grace. That God, that God's grace to that person will be responded to in, in a salvific sense. The the challenge from the Arminians was that this is that God's grace can be resisted. In fact, they would say it's resisted all the time, right? That uh, even the work of the Holy Spirit can be stymied by man's rejection. Now, this is specifically dealing with the time of salvation. This is not dealing with all the other issues uh, in, in, the, in the case. And you can kind of see that one of these leads into the other. They kind of all fall, if any of them is going to fall, or they kind of all just have an interdependency, I guess would probably be a better way to put that. Um, that there's irresistible grace because... You know, it, it, like in the reform world, what would what would be the way in which this could work if if uh, you know God, um, you know, there there's somebody who is totally depraved, uh, but God elects them unconditionally for His own purposes and will, atones for their sins directly, personally, by name, and then is gracious to them and brings them to the point of salvation. And then, what would be the idea that they could just resist that then? Right, so they're all interconnected and all assume the truth of each other. Uh, and on the Arminian side, the the question comes back again. So there's a prevenient grace of God that provides the opportunity for all people to respond positively to the offer of salvation. 
and they would say that there's a conditional election, kind of a cloud of elect people. Now, today, I'm not saying everyone holds the same opinion like this, but at this time, and, you know, that he, that this kind of conditional election is really dependent on your putting your faith in Jesus Christ, and then you're elect. Um, and then uh, with that would actually have to necessitate an unlimited atonement, because then it has to be open to every single person in the world uh, in order for that atonement, in order for that uh, provenient grace to actually be existent. Um, and then because it depends on you believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that has to be a resistible grace that God that it could be possible for the Holy Spirit to be in for, it, using full force of grace to save someone, to attempt to save somebody, and then because of man's rejection is completely stymied in his attempts to save them. And these challenges will go back and forth um, with regards to this. The fifth part of this is, uh, is the um, in the Reformed world what is called the perseverance of the saints. Um, I, I think more modern reformed thinking would call this the preservation of the saints. Regardless, they both kind of say the same thing. The idea is that once you become a you know a Christian and you have and and it and it in time plays out the reality that you have already been elected since the foundations of the earth. There's no going back on that. Um, not only was this grace irresistible, it's irremovable. Um, you know, this is the preservation of the saints that, you know, and there's been a really kind of cheapened way to talk about this, which is kind of once saved, always saved, which people usually hear more of a loosey goosey idea of this. Like, um, you can just do this one thing or say this prayer or something and then go off and do whatever you want and no worries. That's fine. You're covered. That's not what they're saying here. They're saying that you will stay faithful to Christ if you truly ever were. Now, in the Arminian challenge to this, originally, in the earliest parts, before the Synod of Dort, the challenge was that there seems to be some hard places in Scripture to use that interpretation on, especially like in the book of Hebrews, you know, like chapter 6 or chapter 10, uh, and some of the more difficult passages that address things like this. And they would say it does seem to hint at this possibility of falling from grace or, or losing your salvation. And so um, that didn't really get fully developed until the Synod of Dort. And at the Synod of Dort, uh, a lot of those who are in the remonstrance camp came back and said, you know what, we, we've we've really looked into this for that. We, we really have to hold that you can fall from grace. You can lose your salvation. And, and truly, again, it's dependent the same way it is dependent on what salvation was. Did you place your faith in Christ? Yes. Okay. Now, have you taken your faith off of Christ and placed it on something else? Yes. Okay. Then you've lost your salvation. You've what's called what they would call fall from grace. Um, and the remonstrant opinion really did develop into that true believers can indeed lose their salvation and die as unbelievers due to their no longer trusting in Christ. Um, the reformed camp will not hold to this uh, and and say we you know it's not it's not consistent either with the doctrine of election or of the nature of God's grace uh, and we, we and and so many different aspects of the hope that is in uh, the the biblical text that once you 
place your faith in Christ, he gives you eternal life, not upon death. He gives you eternal life then that, that latches itself to you. Um, you know, this isn't something that just kind of like eternal life is something you can go in and out of. Um, and then some people, you know, on the Arminian side, try to bring a level of consistency to this, that, you know, once you uh, are saved and then you lose your salvation, there's absolutely no way to get your salvation back. You've become apostate and there's no longer any hope for you. Um, I have known somebody who holds this uh, and views themselves in that state of unsavability. Uh, and that's why I will say theology has consequences. And and that's one of them. And uh, didn't matter how many times I tried to um, tried to help, but their interpretation of Hebrews chapter ten really drove the fear that their life was lived with. And um, and for me, I would just say from a pastoral perspective, that's very difficult to see and and to watch somebody um, hold to, because the practical sides of that is um, it's hopelessness. And without any any hope in the gospel at all, that um, that they believe that on some level the losing faith in Christ once it was had is is a sin that is uh, the unpardonable sin, um, which is a whole other topic for another day. But um, these things have real effects, right? You will not find most of the people who would hold to kind of a free will. Um, you know, um, unlimited atonement kind of conditional election thing, holding to the idea of strong apostasy on that fifth point of falling from grace permanently uh, today, uh, you will usually actually find that those on the Arminian side of things will usually hold to this kind of once saved, always saved in tandem with it. But um, one of the things that I, I will simply point out, at least at the Synod of Dort, they were seeing those two sides as kind of um, two different. I don't even know how to say this. They were drawing lines of of demarcation to say, you know, all of these are connected with one another. You you can't you can't take the free will, salvation, conditional election, you know, kind of uh, dependent on my choosing of God before He chooses me before I lived. Uh, the unlimited atonement covering of all the human race, the resistible grace, but I still found salvation to that. In order to main cons maintain consistency, both the Reformed and the Arminians would say that you then have to hold that you can also not only choose your salvation, but you can choose to lose it. On the Reformed side is saying, we didn't choose any of this, and therefore we can't choose to leave Christ because we didn't choose to follow him. Um, and so they would they would hold to both of those things but it's it's kind of just interesting now that we've you know kind of come several more hundred years later and you see people kind of picking and choosing from each side when in reality they're both pretty consistent in their own logic and and going back and forth is pretty tough um to 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 really lay it out out like that so uh anyway let's pull back up to the overview and I wanted to dive into the Synod of Dort because uh, it's really interesting. If you didn't recognize it in your notes, those five, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints spell out a flower called tulip. That's where that comes from. That doesn't come from John Calvin. That doesn't come from Luther. It doesn't come from the, in the 1500s at all. It came from the order in which the Reformed theologians answered the challenge of the Arminian theologians. 
Um, and then that became known as Calvinism, which is unfortunately a misnomer um, because Calvin taught on many, 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 many more things than that. In fact, he taught much more on prayer than he taught on any of those points. And actually limited atonement was something he never taught on at all. But um, such, is, such is the history of the world that unfortunately you do all sorts of work and your name gets associated with something that you didn't even do. Uh, kind of strange. Um, so let's pull back up to the overview. So uh, this is kind of the confessional age of Protestantism. They're working on things like this. They're hammering out theology, um, but not in a way where they go, you know, let's let's hammer this all out and then we will decide and we'll release a confession from the council. None of that stuff. This is a this is a very Protestant way of handling things. We're going to come together and then we're going to say, here's the lines of demarcation. Here's where we agree. Here's where we disagree. Here's why. And uh, I would argue it's a much better way to do theology. It's one of the ways I appreciate doing theology. It's one of the reasons I went to, uh, for instance, a seminary that I disagree with. I went to a Wesleyan seminary um, and still am working on my doctorate there. Uh, but I'm not Wesleyan, not, not even close. Um, but I, I appreciate being able to sit down with people that I don't necessarily agree with and they don't necessarily agree with me uh, on on stuff that both of us find very important, but we're able to work through some of these things and kind of draw the lines of clarity uh, better for one another. I find it very helpful, um, you know, in, in, in trying to express theology properly. Um, and that was kind of one of the things that really started with with fervor at the Synod of Dort and uh, continued on. Now, it doesn't mean that Protestants don't come together and have their own oh, shall we say, places where we say this is the theology for our Reformation. Uh, that will certainly happen. The, uh, and it will happen in the 1600s. We've already mentioned them before. The Westminster Confession and the Westminster Catechism that comes with it. Uh, this is 1646. Uh, in the 1640s, that is being drawn up and addressed. Uh, the Westminster Confession, if you go to a... <clears throat> if you go to a um, Presbyterian church, and it's also very influential in the Church of England as well, but uh, definitely much more Presbyterian here uh, in the 1640s. Uh, the Westminster Catechism, if you're in a more um, a more traditional Presbyterian church, this is, if you're a kid, this is probably what you grew up learning, uh, is the Westminster Catechism. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's the one that I think has the, the best starting question of all is, you know, what is the chief end of man? That's the first question in the Westminster Confession or Catechism. And, uh, you know, that, that wonderful answer that comes back, you know, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, just really awesome stuff. Well-written. Um, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, Baptists are, uh, is a group we haven't covered yet, um, but that is that is kind of taking a lot of its cues off the Westminster Confession and um, and refining even further, saying, "Hey, you know, we're not we're not necessarily condemning you know you for you know the Westminster Confession for its statements on uh, on pedo baptism, for instance. But here's where we stand with this: we we would hold to a credo baptism. We would hold to you know you come to faith in Christ first, and and uh, Christ in saving you, the Holy Spirit in convicting and bringing you." The grace of God and salvation, um, it, you know, is, is necessary in order for you to take the sign of salvation, which is um, 
um, baptism. So again, we're not going to battle, you know, Baptists and, Pro and Presbyterians, for instance, didn't go to war over this issue of baptism, but we just drew lines and said, this is, this is where we see scripture saying this, and it seems to be um, where we have to hold to. And, and I find that a, a, a fine way to do theology. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily argue with that as well. Um, a lot of the more Protestant scholastic purposes that we've talked about before really take off in the 1600s. We'll talk about some of those, but not at extreme length. Um, but really more of a dealing with how to how to address things in the natural world. And as we were pointing out before, um, there, there's, there's this scientific almost... It's not really even... A revolution, I suppose. Reformation, it's the earlier parts of that, trying to study the natural world um, almost as unhindered as we can, right? And, you know, there's, I know some people you know, have a hard time trying to say, you know, where, where was theology really making, you know, uh, really huge claims about this kind of stuff? Um, theology made claims about a lot of areas, both in culture and in life and in the natural world, that theology didn't really have any business stepping its foot into. And I don't mean that to say that, you know, if you just read scripture, you're going to be wrong on things. No, I don't believe so. But you will be very nearsighted on some things and not be able to see things at all because scripture doesn't address every issue. Like, you know, scripture doesn't describe, I don't know, um, chlorophyll and how that works in a, in a plant's green leaf. Um, but if you're going to look at, you know, the Psalms, something that's poetic and, and saying that, you know, God causes the rain uh, to, to fall. Let's say that there's a Psalm that talks about the rain falling and, and, you know, feeding the plants and stuff like this. And then someone comes along and discovers chlorophyll and says, Hey, you know, you the, the plant actually feeds itself from the light of the sun, not from the water. And, and because we've taught based on a poetic passage that we interpreted to be dogmatically stating some scientific reality, we resist that and then we call it fidelity to the biblical text. But the reality is, as someone's looking at it, they're saying, hey, you know, chlorophyll is not really a debatable point. It's it's just right there. You can watch, I can demonstrate it for you right here. And what wouldn't that express the uh the, the real nature of God's natural world? Wouldn't you want to know both of those things? And this is this is one of those things in 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 Christian theology that we're going to have to address as we continue going through the scientific revolution and the enlightenment thinking and some of the challenges that come at it. Um, one of the best ways that I think for Christians to address this is to respect that all truth, no matter where you find it, natural world, uh, special revelation in scripture, all truth everywhere belongs to God. It's God's truth. As a Christian, to hold to that opens you up to realize that when you read something in Scripture, and then when you go and read the natural world, or archaeology, or science, or chlorophyll, or whatever the case may be, your, your Christianity, your theology must look for how is it that all of these things that are true are unified. Because 
God made both the world and the scriptures and everything else, which means all truth, whatever it is, is God's truth. And they are in a full agreement and they meet at the top somehow, which means if I'm seeing discrepancies, then I am misinterpreting something or I'm working with partial information. This is really common in archaeology, for instance. Archaeology, people don't realize we have less than 1% of 1% of things ever get dug up. And so we're always working with partial information. And so some people will go, oh, you know, this archaeological thing, it really challenges the way this certain thing happens or whatnot. Um, and with that, it's always important for us to remember, look, we're always working with partial information, not only from the ground, but also from the historical narrative of the scriptural text. You know, when when God talks about something, how many how many times do you read, you know, look at the you know book of Judges, for instance, where it just goes like, you know, this is happening. The people of Israel were captured by the, you know, um, you know, the the king of Mesopotamia for eight years, and then they were freed from that, and then their land had rest for forty years. Is that an exhaustive history? How how specific is that? There's many places like that where you you know you get some instances and then you just get jumps in history and all sorts of things. And people don't really realize how much that happens. And we shouldn't expect that everything survived in history buried in the ground for an archaeologist, nor should we expect that the biblical text, for instance, is completely uh, exhaustive. It's true. And so is the ground and archaeology. But if we find disagreement, and I think this is the most important thing that I can hand down to Christians in the modern world, if we find disagreement, apparent disagreement between these things, the issue is in the interpretation. It's not in God. The problem is not in scripture. And the problem is not in the natural world. The problem is how we're interpreting something somewhere. The church was very, very sure that the earth was the center of the universe, for instance. Thankfully, God built this world with things like math and uh, an ability to turn silica into glass to make telescopes so we could actually prove that there's a whole solar system around us and a galaxy and hundreds of billions of more galaxies. That's remarkable. Obviously, some of the assumptions we're making when we were looking at the scriptures were given to a people whose perception is on the ground of this planet, maybe we read too much into that. Maybe something's missing in the way that we see the solar system. Maybe something's off. Whatever it is, there is unity at the top at God, and we are trying to understand what are we misinterpreting. Now, as a Protestant, I'm never going to say that the scriptures are wrong. That is my presupposition. The scriptures are right. But how many times have I been wrong about the scriptures? Times without count. And so I want to understand, am I messing something up in my interpretation of the scriptures? Or am I messing something up in my interpretation of the natural world? I'll give you another instance. The scriptures use a vernacular description of how a woman gets pregnant, for instance. And it talks about the man, the man's seed, right? Because from a natural perspective in the ancient world, that's just kind of what that looks like. Uh, you know, whether it's, you know, fertile, you know, all this kind of stuff. Right. And so that was kind of a general understanding. Well, in, in the natural world and in discovery and things like this, we learned that's not exactly how that works. Um, both lend to the DNA equally and, um, you know, egg and sperm and all this kind of stuff. It's not as simple as planting a seed in the ground and growing a tree. 
it's something, you know, so we learned that, oh, well, that was actually an analogy that was expressing something that makes sense to make that argument and that case in just the physical world itself, we can understand, hey, all right, so this helps us understand, hey, that actually gives us more information about the scriptures. Obviously, God knew how it was. He created both things, but he was speaking to us on our level, on an analogous level, to express some instance about this. It doesn't mean that we can just take anything as analogy. It just means we are looking, and this is this is really the, the spirit of the 1600s with this early starts of the Enlightenment, early starts of the scientific revolution. We want to make sense of everything around us. And we're not going to hold that either the scriptures or the natural world are wrong. We are going to hold that our interpretations are limited and often wrong. And so you will see on both sides at the Synod of Dort, um, both of them will be appealing to scripture. Both of them will be using reason. Things that God has made and things that are partially blinded, uh, even to some of our own designs and some of our own limitations. Okay, let's pull out of theology and philosophy and go back to kind of the overview. The 1600s um, respond to this thinking on all sorts of different fronts. Every time you have overhauls in thought, overhauls in ways of interacting with the world, uh, it's going to affect things like art and architecture. Um, that happens all the time. And by the end of the 1600s, we enter the, the period, the stage called the Baroque period of the arts, uh, a very, very ornate, elaborate architecture, music, art, things are just complicated and, and, um, you know, crown molding, if you will, right? It's, uh, the, the music is complicated and has un, unusual twists and turns in it, um, you know, things like that are are becoming part of this. Now, the Baroque has its own boringness to it, too, which is why it's not the last, um, you know, period of music and architecture and things like this. But it has a very distinct quality to it. Um, and a lot of this comes in the enormous leaps forward in materials and tools and instruments. And a lot of this really comes as a result of the Age of Exploration coming to a close and more of the age of trade, of colonialism, and um, and no longer really exploring, more really setting up trade lines everywhere. Uh, we're able to go to the Spice Islands in the South Pacific, for instance, and, and then find our way back to Europe after a month and, you know, two months of traveling, um, trying to do all this kind of stuff, right? These these types of we have more materials, we have more culturals, uh, cultural knowledges based on you know all these things we're running into, uh, tools, instruments, you know, um, these types of things are all all beginning to come into and pour into Europe, and uh, it happens to be a time where Europe is perfectly primed to receive all of that. Really interesting. Um, it a lot of this, especially the Baroque. Uh, period of the arts becomes adopted largely by the Catholic Church uh, over and against the Protestant churches. You're not going to find Protestant churches having, you know, ornate organs uh, or um, at least like in the in the more influential Reformed churches, 
you're not going to be finding um, ornate, you know, sanctuaries or pews. You're actually going to find a oversimplification uh, of those things and a revulsion against them. And so you'll see things become much more Puritan, for instance, uh, you know, white walls, white building, a white church, very simple, you know, wooden pews and everything's just really plain, quaint and non-distracting. That's the opposite of Baroque. Uh, and so you'll even see a revulsion against all these instruments and stuff. And so uh, you're going to see effects even in the Protestant world on this is like this, you know, the longer we can resist the culture, the better and more um, and more faithful we are. And this happens all the time on completely, um, on, on completely, you know, non-theological things. But for some people, they are theological things, like whether you can play instruments in church or not. That was a huge debate, huge, huge debate uh, for a lot of uh, for a lot of Protestants. Um, and so, for but in the earlier years, and so you'll find why, like you know, people like Bach and things like this, even though he's German, is going to be largely played and supported and developed things like the Baroque period in the Catholic Church, uh, especially things like choirs. Um, and, and so forth. So, um, it's, it's kind of, it's really similar to the Renaissance artists decorating St. Peter's Basilica in the early 1500s, the Renaissance art and architecture, Michelangelo, Donatello, um, you know, you know, these, these guys who are designing and sculpting and painting and, um, and, and things like this really well supported by the Catholic church. It's always been one of those, one of those things that they, uh, they focus on much more so. Um, the Protestants will not attach themselves to the arts in the Baroque period in any major way. And that's pretty much across the board, pretty much across the board. Not, not a universal, but <laughs> about as universal as it gets. Um, now, I said this was also partially a history class. And so because of that, we have to talk about the kingdoms of Europe at this time. Um, just to kind of give us a lay of the land before we delve into... Um, so, some of the effects of a lot of these things. Um, and as we refer to them uh, going forward, I think it would be helpful. Um, so let's let's do a quick rundown of the kingdoms in Europe and the expansion out to the Americas. And we'll end on that because this is just, it's a lot of information to walk through. Uh, and I don't want to, I don't want my own brain to start melting. And I know some people are going to start checking out. So let's let's discuss these kingdoms and then we'll we'll end it here. Um, so the kingdoms here, France, By the 1600s, France is all grown up. Uh, France had been kind of hemming and hawing about becoming its own place for many, many years. And France now becomes a power of its own militarily speaking. Um, it becomes all of its own as far as its influence is throughout all of Europe, uh, becomes a very, very powerful, uh, force to be reckoned with and will continue to be so. Um, now France will, be the next world power by the end of the 1800s, by the way. And uh, now, you know, England and the British Empire will also be enormously powerful, but France is going to be as well. And when Napoleon comes in, in the early 1800s, we'll see all that. Um, uh, as I just men mentioned, England, uh, England for the 1600s has a very tumultuous century. Uh, the English Civil War, uh, the loss of Parliament, the the rulership of Oliver Cromwell, and 
you know, um, all that kind of stuff, uh, the jailing of John Milton and yeah, we'll discuss all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's going on in England at this time. The Holy Roman empire is a patchwork of infighting that, uh, by the, you know, from the start of the 1600s, uh, is being held together with, you know, spit and bailing twine, as it was said where I was growing up. Uh, by the end of the 1600s, the Holy Roman Empire is basically uh, shattered. Uh, and we'll discuss why that is uh, here in, in just a minute. Um, so uh, Spain, Spain is very powerful. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the reformations towards the towards Catholicism that took place 150 years beforehand with Ferdinand and Isabella, and a lot of their early early uh, leadership and expansions to the New World, especially in South America and Central America, has led them with an influx of gold and and things that all of Europe wants, namely brand new things that nobody knew existed before, things like chocolate, things like tomatoes. Uh, these types of things were brand new, new world things and tobacco. Nobody had known about any of these things. And Spain was leading out in, in, uh, in dominating uh, the, uh, the new world and um, feeding their empire from that. Um, the Netherlands is an interesting thing as well. The Netherlands has their own civil war in the 1600s. Uh, the Northern and Protestant side uh, kept their name, the Netherlands. Uh, which today you will see is the Netherlands. Uh, the Southern and much more Catholic side, uh, they just ended up with two different countries. The Southern Catholic formed a new country called Belgium, which is still Belgium to this day. Uh, in the Protestant North, this is where the Synod of Dort was held and all that kind of stuff. They formed the Dutch Trading Company and actually become uh, an economic machine. Uh, the Netherlands goes from civil war and unrest and everything like this to unbelievable economic powerhouse really, really fast. Um, they become uh, one of the most uh, significant economic drivers of all of Europe, actually, by the end of the 1600s. So they're a really kind of a remarkable switch around for them. Um, and, and all of that is in the, the Protestant North side of that. So really, really fascinating stuff. We'll get into some of that later, but not, not too detailed. Um, the reason why the Holy Roman Empire becomes a patchwork of crazy is what's called the Thirty Years' War. Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. This, this becomes like the last breath of what Europe once was. And the, the full-on issue of the Thirty Years' War really comes down to Protestant kingdoms going to war with Catholic kingdoms and Catholic kingdoms going to war with Protestant kingdoms and often over theological issues. And here's something that's really interesting is what political allies develop due to theological convictions uh, and then political uh allyships that break based on theological divisions. The Thirty Years' War is a horrible time period in, in Europe's history. Uh, the worst war that they had ever experienced to date, and that includes the Hundred Years' War. The Thirty Years' War is a, a, a just an, an absolute atrocity uh, with regards to things like this, but I want you to understand the effect that this war ends up having a lot of what is going on in the world as a whole 
is starting to look much better than what's going on in Europe. And so in the early 1600s, during this 30 years war, you start getting people leaving Europe by droves and trying to settle out and find something else. And so you'll even have separatists leave England called the Pilgrims in 1620. And they're setting up shop in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, right? You're going to find... Um, you're going to find not only uh, things like that happening in Plymouth, Massachusetts, you're going to be having them set up uh, all along in places like Rhode Island. You, you'll get a lot of these things from more reformed or Puritan sides of things as well, uh, Protestants that are leaving, but that doesn't mean that they're the only ones that are doing so. You'll get, um, you'll get Catholics also. You'll get, you'll get people just fed up with how Europe is going. Uh, throughout all of this, um, and and seeing that theological disunity in Europe led to people not being able to live next to one another without killing one another, um, and the real tragedy of the Thirty Years' War, and we're going to talk about the Thirty Years' War in a lot more detail going forward, uh, is that the vast majority of those who die in the Thirty Years' War weren't soldiers. They were civilians, casualties of war and of the effects of war. Now, don't get me wrong, a lot of a lot of soldiers died. A lot of them. Million, million and a half, maybe even. Uh, and over 30 years, that <clears throat> that's not a, a, a huge amount com- considering the amount of countries that were at war and the length of time they were at war. But the reality is that nearly six million citizens died too. Starvation and plague, directly caused by the war itself. The entire Holy Roman Empire collapses, um, and it takes 30 years to finally come. I mean, it's an entire generation. 30 years to finally come to the end of it, uh, a, a joining of several different treaties called the Peace of Westphalia uh, in 1648 that finally puts an end to that. But the damage is done, honestly. The idea that Europe cannot solve its theological problems without war and death, uh, really, while while the new world is being settled, that is in the back of everyone's mind. And I really, really want you to get that takeaway. If we're going to come over here and we're going to make a whole nother country, and this is going to be the new world, and we're going to leave the old world behind, we have got to find a way that we, while disagreeing, can live next to one another without murdering one another. Now, we are still very, very early on in the founding of what becomes the country America. Uh, The United States of America was specifically designed so that in disagreeing with one another, we can still live in harmony, respecting one another's disagreements and trying to live next to one another without killing one another. And we took some of what we, some of the best that we learned from Europe and we tried to leave behind some of the worst that we learned over there as well. And uh, this is not to say that Europe is good, bad, or anything. No, it's just to say it really worked out so well over here that Europe now, and this is kind of the remarkable thing about the late modern age, Europe now in the European Union is is attempting to, to follow in the United States footprints on some level and to unify together with kind of a federalishness, yet with local sovereignties, so that we can live next to one another without killing one another. Uh, We don't want 
yet another World War II or another 30 years war or another World War One. No, we're we're trying to make it so that we don't do that either. Yeah, here's the thing. In in the United States, we've had a pretty decent history of this. We have 50 states, and you know, we've gone to war once. Um, you know, I mean, in 250 years, that's not a terrible uh that's not a terrible <laughs> for so many differences of opinion, a terrible track record. Um, we'll see how this century pans out. Uh, but this is kind of one of those things too, is that this is in the back of everyone's mind. So when we come over here and we found, you know, new Amsterdam, we don't want to make it necessarily like the old Amsterdam. We want it to be like new Amsterdam or New York, uh, which is what new Amsterdam eventually gets called. We don't want it to be like old York. We want it to be like New York, uh, new London in Connecticut. We don't want it to be like the old London. We want it to be like new London. All of these things are happening in the 1600s and people are coming over and trying to say, look, we're going to we're going to have a call back to the past or we're going to we're going to appeal to a certain theological importance this is why we get things like um the capital of Rhode Island for instance is named providence it's a theological argument uh you know providence it was founded in 1636 right that is the name of the city why what were we trying to say god is here with us and we are going to attempt to carry out his plan and purpose without murdering one another because we uh, we realize that that's not the way he would have it. And so, um, you know, the, the 30 years war has dramatic effects for the way in which the United States here at this point, the Americas are settled, especially in the 13 colonies um, as they continue to develop. Um, and so that kind of brings us to the Americas, right? Everyone knows the first uh, two stories, I suppose. Um, Jamestown is founded in Virginia, uh, which if you didn't know, the colony of Virginia is named after the Virgin Queen. That was Elizabeth. And and once she died, King James of Scotland took took over in England. And in 1607, um, about four years into his reign, uh, they officially founded the earliest English, uh, at least sanctioned settlement in the Americas, and that is Jamestown, which is named after King James. Yes, that King James. And so all of that to be said, uh, to, to be said is um, as these things start settling, they take on different flavors and different ways of doing things. And so you'll see them trying to grow up next to each other as different colonies with their own um, with their own kind of set of beliefs and, and things that they hold dear. And, um, and others will, um, do it in their own way. Like, so the pilgrims, uh, which were separatists from the church of England, uh, land in Massachusetts in 1620. And they, they set up a very different sort of governance and, um, and theological, uh, presuppositions than do those who settle in Jamestown. Um, and, you know, by the time you get to the 1650s, uh, and 1660s, you have Maine is settled, uh, you know, Portland and, uh, goodness, Boston, Plymouth, obviously is the earliest one in the North, um, all the way down to Connecticut, Rhode Island, New London, New Haven, Stamford, all of these places are all settled in the, in, in the earlier part of the 1600s. Uh, and it continues to develop quickly, uh, inland as well, up rivers and, uh, and going all throughout the North, uh, the Northeast. Um, pretty awesome stuff. A lot of things to talk about on those things. And a lot of our conversation after the 1600s is going to move towards the Americas. 
because the reality is that uh, a lot of the development in Christian thought and in Christian denominations and in theology happens on the shores of America more than the shores of Europe uh, in the coming centuries. But for the 1600s, that's where this huge transition and, uh, and turn really takes place. Okay, I believe I have overloaded everyone tonight. Uh, and I apologize if that's the case. Uh, if you do have any other questions or questions of clarity, please feel free to put them up in the chat here. <clears throat> but um, we covered an enormous amount of material. Uh, I hope it was able to clarify some things uh, with regards to this. Even if you took uh, some of this and left others of it, well, there's always recordings and podcasts. And you know, for those who are listening uh, elsewise, I do want to add a disclaimer at the end. Same as same as it is. Anytime I talk about somebody else's theology or somebody else's denomination, I never intend uh, at all to to um, to insult or belittle anyone's theology or point. Not because I don't think you're wrong or I'm not right or anything like that. It's just because that's that's not the job of church history. We're here trying to talk about things, um, you know, straight up. And so if 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 in any way I do offend. Uh, certainly is not intentional. I do apologize if that does happen. Um, even when it comes to theology, I'm not here trying to, you know, uh, draw lines as who's in, who's out or anything like that. So, um, trying to, trying to express it in the most respectful way I can. Um, I would expect to be treated with respect if someone was trying to represent my beliefs, uh, and my denominations. And so I try to do my best as well. I hope you can, I hope you can hear that. Um, so, uh, thank you, Ken. Appreciate the encouragement. Uh, thank you guys all and uh, Lord's blessings to you. And I look forward to to diving into the specifics of some of these things here in the weeks to come. Um, if you didn't notice, uh, last time I was with you all two weeks ago, I said that um, I said that I wasn't going to be here on the 8th. Uh, I wasn't lying. I just didn't realize um, my daughter's heart surgery actually got uh, moved um, to the beginning of April at this point, very conveniently the uh, the Thursday before it. Easter this year. So, um, so because they got moved, I went ahead and rescheduled this one. And, uh, so we'll, we'll have to take that actual break here a few more weeks from now. So thank you all for your prayers. I appreciate that. And, uh, Lord's blessings to you all. Uh, if I can be of help at all, you're welcome to, uh, you're welcome to even just leave a, leave a comment on one of these videos or, um, or shoot me a text or anything like this. If you know me personally, otherwise I look forward to seeing you here each Wednesday night, 6 30 PM Lord's blessings.